Welcome to FIC Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence FIC research team. Welcome to the FIC Focus podcast. This is our global asset allocator edition, talking about fixed income returns on a forward basis. My name is Ira Jersey. I'm your host and the chief interest rate strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, the research arm of Bloomberg LP. With me today is Damian Sassauer. Damian is our emerging market strategist, but also compiles all of the data from all of the Bloomberg Intelligence global strategy teams to look at fixed income returns uh, over the next year or so. Uh, Damien, thanks very much for joining me for FIC Focus today. Thank you for having me, Ira. So just before we get going on the projected returns, I, I think it's it's going to be very helpful for a lot of our listeners to talk a little bit about the context of where we uh, where we currently are and where we might be going. So uh, just this morning, right before we recorded, we received the uh, the CPI report for June. It was 9.1 percent on a, a, a year on year basis for headline, uh, still very significant and ticking up for on a core basis as well, which is probably a little bit more concerning given um, that that core inflation tends to be a bit stickier than uh, that than headline inflation and with with energy and food prices a little bit lower than they were uh, on average in June, um, that that's a little bit concerning. And, and certainly policymakers are going to be thinking about increasing interest rates maybe a little bit more than the market was thinking prior to that number. Uh, and you have seen that in the market with some significant um, flattening of the yield curve, uh, as well as uh, a bit of a sell-off uh, in, in aggregate. Um, but that being said, I, I think we're at the point where um, we're 10-year treasuries and longer-term treasuries where a lot of the risk is in the market and what dr tends to drive returns of fixed income indices may actually start to uh, start to stabilize pretty significantly and maybe even uh, by the end of the year rally a little bit and certainly rally and in, in, uh, not certainly, but at least our expectation is for the 10 year yield to be lower a year from now than it is today. Um, and because of that, you wind up with, uh, firstly, a big flattening of the yield curve, but secondly, actually positive returns for the Treasury market, even though uh, 2022 is still likely to be the worst year on record for the Bloomberg Treasury Index. Um, and, and unprecedentedly, it will also be the second negative return year in a, in the, a row for the Treasury Index. And, and uh, I think that that reverses pretty substantially um, in 2023 on a year-on-year -year basis. Now, with, with that context and with the idea that we, we might actually have positive Treasury returns from now until mid-June next year, I want to bring in Damien to talk a little bit about um, kind of the, the global uh, landscape, uh, which obviously will be significantly driven by what central banks are doing. But importantly, um, you know, now that we have positive yields, even in Europe and Japan, <laughs> what does that mean for returns globally in, in, say, the government markets, but also in spread product as well? Yeah, Ira. Well, I mean, look, you know, at Bloomberg Intelligence, um, our fixed strategy team, we cover 14 um, fixed income asset classes effectively. Um, and, you know, collectively, they comprise, you know, over 90 percent of the broad Bloomberg Global Aggregate Bond Index. And so, you know, if you look back a year ago, which I think you have to do, you know, when we looked at our total return estimates, I mean, they were near it was a sea of red, Ira. I mean, we were calling for 12 month total returns. 
um, total, total losses effectively, you know, going through till, you know, end of June of 2022, which just passed. And so while our estimates were indeed negative, um, they were well short of where we are now. I mean, the Bloomberg gag is down 14 and a half percent year to date. Um, nearly, I mean, literally every asset class, every sub asset class within the ag is down on the year. Uh, 11 of the 14 major fixed income asset classes that we cover uh, are running double digit losses on the year, Ira. You know, uh, global fixed income as a whole has lost $9 trillion in market value this year alone. Nine trillion. So, you know, certainly the valuations, uh, you know, the valuation landscape has improved for fixed income. And we're seeing that in the total return estimates looking ahead over one year from now from our from our from our analysts globally, you know, and, and those sectors that are most likely to outperform in the environment you just sort of outlined one where, you know, we see. Uh, U.S. 10-year yields roughly on the order of 2.46%, uh, I believe, you know, two-year at 251. This is, again, looking at to June of 2023. We see U.S. munis. We see U.S. mortgages. We see U.S. investment grade being the primary beneficiaries um, of that type of a scenario. And so, you know, look, you know, we estimate losses in just two of the 14 asset classes over the next year, those being European treasuries and U.K. gilts, right? And that has more to do with the currency impact than yields themselves. But nevertheless, of the 14 sectors we cover, looking out over one year, IRA, only two are expected to be down, two are expected to be flat, and the balance are expected to be up over the period. Well, and I, I think that's an important uh, distinction, Damien, because you know even though we we look at the past and and we say okay in 2022 so far and over the last 12 months you've seen significant declines in equity markets you've also seen significant declines in in rates markets so if you were in a 60 40 portfolio it didn't work right and and in in part I think because it was also an anti quantitative easing trade right so you were talking about quantitative tightening and generally speaking if quantitative easing you have bonds and stocks both going up at the same time uh, during quantitative tightening, at least at some point for, for some period of time, you're going to get exactly the opposite. And that's what we've seen so far this year. Um, but to your point with, with fixed income returns globally being much better, um, maybe spreads not widening out as much, at least on a going forward basis, um, you you know we could see pretty substantial and, and decent returns for for fixed income assets, even if uh, risk assets like like equities don't necessarily uh, rally back toward their toward their highs that we had at the beginning of the year. So so a balanced portfolio may actually perform more like a balanced portfolio as opposed to just everything you know going up or everything going down. Um, so, so I think that's really important. Um, so, D Damien, anything else that you'd like to highlight in, in our yeah. Global Asset Allocator product? It, it did go out this morning on the 13th of July. Uh, you know, we encourage everyone to, to have a look at it and, uh, you know, make sure you, uh, you know, give us feedback on, on what you'd like to, uh, to see in the future as well. But, Damien, off to you again. Yeah, no, I mean, look, you know, what we try to do um, and what I try to do and my team, what we try to do is we then try to combine these 14 subclasses within Global Fixed Income and form what we believe to be an optimal portfolio, you know, based on realized volatility over the last, let's call it 10 years, right? So, you know, effectively what this tells us is when we do this and we try to, you know, recreate um, this efficient frontier, you know, optimized according to mean variance, all that Harry Markowitz good stuff. Um, what we find is that um, U.S. Treasuries um, obviously are given a maximum weight, given, you know, those forecasts that we've just kind of outlined. Um, 
what's interesting is as you kind of move from like the minimum risk portfolio at the at one end toward that maximum sharp ratio, that maximum risk adjusted um, return portfolio, what you see is, you know, a shift, you know, and basically you see U.S. mortgages starting to benefit. You see U.S. investment grade and muni starting to benefit um, at the expense of non-dollar fixed income asset classes like EM local or, again, European treasuries, JGBs, for example, you know, China government bonds. China government bonds have been a stellar performer over the past three years. You know, one of the few that have actually had that still have a, a an annualized three year, a three year annualized return that's in the plus that's in positive territory. Right. So, you know, so it's kind of interesting, you know, just how how the optimal uh, composition of different asset classes shifts as you move from minimal risk and you start to incrementally add risk. Right. And then what's interesting is as you move past the maximum sharp ratio portfolio to the maximum return portfolio, it's again, it's non-dollar asset classes, CGBs again, you know, that really start to suffer. Um, I'm, ta- I'm talking in terms of, you know, less exposure there at the expense of U.S. dollar spread asset classes. And I think that's the theme here, because one would historically think that as you're moving up the risk spectrum, Ira, you'd want to be taking more risk in non-dollar bonds. You'd be wanting to take more currency risk into your portfolio. But we're not seeing that, you know, based on our return estimates or those of our strategists, what we're seeing is really, you know, a, a shift toward spread related asset classes. And I think, you know, it speaks to what you're saying. You know, if there is one more shoe to drop in global fixed income, I mean, we've seen the move in yields. It's going to be gap risk and spreads, right? As we push closer to a recession. I mean, we're still in the stagflationary environment. You talked about the 9.1% CPI print this morning, Ara. But, you know, for me, I think spread risk is really the, the big overhang as we kind of push further into the summer. And so, you know, we're going to be watching that very closely. Again, you know, $9 trillion in market value has been wiped out of global fixed income this year. If you were to have been holding the Bloomberg Global Aggregate since 2012, you are now running a cumulative loss on your position. That's nine and a half years your money's been tied up in, in, in a diversified portfolio fixed income, and you've got nothing to show for it but a loss. I mean, it's really quite amazing. So, and and how much does do uh, does currency translation feed into those returns, right? Because you did mention that, um, that you know, obviously, uh, hard currency returns and and emerging market currency returns, um, you know, can be a big driver of some of the Absolutely. exposure for dollar investors. So, um, yeah, you know, it's spend a minute or two talking about that, and then we'll shift over to uh, to our new segment. Yeah, that's an awesome question, Ira, and you're hitting the nail on the head for me there. I mean, look, the Bloomberg Dollar Index is up ten percent year to date, right? And, um, you know, obviously that's a lot of euro weakness, a lot of yen weakness. And it's interesting because, you know, what we do when we run our analysis is we look at these returns across all of these asset classes, even the non-dollar bond asset, uh, asset classes, in dollar terms, right? We're taking those returns and we're converting them back into dollars to see what the total return is. And obviously when you see a stronger dollar, that weighs heavily on 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 returns on 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 yeah on returns and so you know I'll give you a stat that'll kind of sit with you and hopefully our audience here if you look at you know the 21 emerging market currencies the majors right only three are positive year to date versus the dollar the dollar's again up 10% year to date but if you look at it versus the euro in euro terms if you look at these 21 emerging market currencies 17 of 21 17 are positive year to date and if you look at them in yen terms 19 of 21 are positive year to date with the Turkish lira and the Hungarian forints, the only outliers. So, you know, it just tells you everything you need to know from the eye of the beholder, Ira, from the perspective of your funding currency, how are, you know, fixed income asset classes to perform? And, you know, again, for this analysis, we look at it in dollar terms and clearly you're getting uh, you're getting to the nuts of it, which is 
you know, we pretty much are calling for a persistently stronger dollar in the upcoming environment. Great. Well, Damien, thanks for coming back on FIC Focus. Uh, you have your own edition of this particular podcast as well. Why don't you give it a, a little quick t uh, tease and uh, we'll move over to our index uh, update. Ira, I would never think to market another an adjacent piece of property on your real estate, <laughs> but I'm going to do it anyway. The Emerging Market Lens and Look Through Podcast. You guys got to check it out. Tons of content there. Check out FIC Focus Podcast on Spotify and Apple TV. I'm sorry, Apple Radio. And, uh, and and give it a give it a give it a whirl. I think you'll enjoy it. And also our macro matters edition of this particular podcast as well, talking mostly about rates and the economy in general. So, uh, you know, just subscribe to the Fix Focus podcast, and you'll get a lot of great content uh, related to fixed income, currencies, and commodities. With that, we're going to say goodbye to Damien and say hello to Chris Hackle. He is with the Bloomberg Index team, and, and he covers and, and works on the ESG-focused uh, indices. Uh, Chris, thanks very much for coming on Fick Focus. Thanks so much for having me, Ira. So as you go around the world and you talk to clients about sustainable investing and what they want to do in terms of um, uh, in terms of their own uh, needs, what types of uh, themes and, and theme baskets are clients most interested in in the ESG space, particularly for fixed income uh, uh, fixed income uh, indices? Yeah, it's been really interesting in recent years because we actually have seen a pretty substantial shift. And I'm saying that coming from a perspective of about a decade of experience in fixed income ESG indexing. So we launched the Bloomberg MSCI uh, fixed income ESG index family all the way back in 2012. Uh, they're the market leading fixed income ESG indices. And so we sort of have a long view of ESG use in the fixed income markets. And what we've seen in at least recent, I'd say year or two years, is that traditional ESG, and by that, I mean primarily ESG ratings integration into a portfolio or into an index. It's sort of taking a bit of a backseat uh, in the sustainable investing theme. And the focus is shifting heavily now to climate themes. And I'd say that that's probably driven by maybe three factors. So there's new regulation that's coming out of Europe. And that regulation is very heavily focused on sort of encouraging the integration of these climate themes uh, by asset managers and asset owners. We've also seen very large asset managers and asset owners making net zero commitments. So when they make those, they then seek to demonstrate their, uh, their commitments there through the funds that they're creating and the products that they're creating. And then there's just this broad mainstream recognition, I think, that climate change, if it's not an existential threat, people at least view it as being a financially material concern. So I think that those are the three driving factors, again, in the shift that we're seeing broadly to a focus on climate versus traditional ESG. And then another component of that is that, and this kind of ties into the regu regulatory component, there, the European Commission is really driving an initiative to sort of standardize the labeling of low carbon benchmarks. So that if you're going to create a low carbon benchmark, Everyone can sort of feel comfortable that you're on the same page in terms of the objectives of the benchmarks, the science behind it. And that makes people less concerned about uh, accusations potentially of greenwashing, which we're seeing more of in the market. So broadly speaking, I'd say that that's, that's the biggest theme that we've seen that's happening globally is the shift in focus in the launching and creation of new climate themed indices versus traditional ESG. And you, you mentioned, Chris, about regulations in Europe, and, and obviously there's different regulations as far as 
um, you know, trying to create some kind of green revolution, right? And certainly the Biden administration has talked about it, and um, and and so have a lot of other leaders globally in in the political realm. Um, you know, investing obviously takes a little bit longer to ramp up, and and people uh, to you know try and innovate in those sectors. So, is there a significant difference in uh, in in kind of regional breakdowns? Like, are people asking for European specific ESG indices versus emerging market ESG versus say uh, North America? ESG. Yeah, th- there are. Um, I mean, there's a lot of similarities and there's some differences too. And, and the interesting thing is that I think if you look at uh, what a lot of global leaders are saying right now, uh, especially with the administration in place in the U.S., there is a pretty strong alignment in terms of object- objectives uh, in ESG and climate themes. But how that plays out within the investment community, I would say, does differ a bit. I think that in Europe, the investor base, they're really heavily focused on climate with the perspective, I think, of making the financial industry sort of part of the climate change solution. So when you talk to a European uh, asset manager or investor, what they're looking for is sort of a more comprehensive uh, solution or or fund to invest in. I mentioned before those uh, minimum requirements uh, created by the European Commission. They're looking to go beyond that. They want to actually demonstrate impact when they're investing in or creating these types of funds. In the U.S., I mean, for one, I think that uh, fossil fuel investment, it's a more sensitive topic in the U.S. than it is uh, in Europe. And so I think that in the U.S., we do see a perspective in that investor base that leans a little bit more towards the opportunity. And what I mean by that is no matter what your perspective is on climate change or or fossil fuels, I think there is sort of broad agreement globally amongst many different people that there is a transition underway to a low carbon economy. So we see that play out examples of that in the rapid increase in adoption of uh, electric vehicle sales and heavy investment in renewable energy. So I think that the US investor base, their perspective is more where are the opportunities that are being created from the shift uh, to a low carbon economy? And that could be things like funds or products created off of you know, electric vehicles or renewable energy, uh, which is something that our equity team has done recently. So and we we did see you know initially and say when about the time you started I guess in doing the ESG index space and then uh, over the you know five to ten years uh, in between the global financial crisis and the pandemic a, a pretty sig- significant increase and certainly growth rates into ESG product that were quite substantial but but that slowed quite a lot lately um, is there anything in particular and any reason why you think that there's been a, a little bit of a slowing in um, uh, in the adoption of ESG uh, ESG products in general? Yeah, I mean, we, we, you have seen just broadly, if you if you go to ETF Go, you know, you've seen that there are, and, and filter to ESG themes that, you know, there are uh, outflows, uh, some outflows happening in uh, ESG ETFs and the, the inflows have slowed down in other asset classes. You know, first thing I would say is that as an index provider at Bloomberg, we really have a very forward-looking view because right now we're having conversations with, very large clients and asset managers about the funds that they're creating to be launched, you know, say six months out or eight months out or even a year out. And from our seat, what we're seeing is no slowdown, at least in the interest of creation of these new types of climate themed uh, and ESG themed funds. So so that's that's sort of just a starting point. Um, 
there have been these uh, out some outflows and a slowdown, but I think that also differs across different asset classes. The vast, vast majority of uh, ESG ETF assets right now are in equities. And if you look at how many there are, I mean, it's seemingly an uncountable number of, uh, of ESG-themed uh, equity ETFs. So I think it's inevitable whether there's a downturn in the economy or not, that there's going to be a culling of those funds at some point. And I think we have started to see a little bit of that. And again, from the global perspective, I think that's accelerated a bit by the increased regulatory scrutiny of ESG that we're seeing. So I think that from, from a client, from our client perspective, there's a bit more hesitance to put out ESG products now until there's a little bit more regulatory uh, clarity on uh, both in the US and, and in Europe. Um, you know, fixed income, I'd say, has fared better. Um, so the, the outflows from fixed income ESG ETFs hasn't been as dramatic as equities. And again, I think that that's because there just aren't as many fixed income funds. So sort of a, a, a growth area within uh, ESG investing, whereas equity is, is very established. Uh, overall, though, I think in the long term, you know, as I mentioned before, from, from our perspective as an index provider, we're, we're not seeing that slowdown reflected in, in our client engagements. Uh, I think that the coming regulation as it sort of develops and becomes more clear is going to actually help rather than hinder uh, sustainable asset growth as people sort of understand more, you know, that they're operating within within the required bounds and they're not going to be accused of greenwashing. Um, and so I think, yeah, some investors are in sort of a wait and see mode on ESG. But as we see more of that regulatory clarity, I think that that's also going to help accelerate growth in the theme. Lovely. That was Chris Hackle. Chris, thanks very much for coming back on the FIC Focus podcast or coming on for the first time, I should say, on the FIC Focus podcast. My pleasure. And with that, uh, listener, thank you very much for listening. We'll have more on the Macro Matters edition as well as our global asset allocator once every quarter as we look at fixed income returns on a forward basis. Thanks very much for listening. Until next time, be well. <laughs>